Hello and welcome to Inside Music, episode number 108. My name is James Shotwell and this is my show coming to you currently from my office in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a home office as many of you know, so it's pretty much a normal day around here. I'm fine, the two fat cats are asleep and there's nothing really to complain about. On this week's episode of the show, I'm chatting with Jesse Cannon, a career music producer and author of two books geared towards helping artists accelerate their careers. The first was dedicated to getting more fans, but the second, the recently released Processing Creativity, focuses on the craft of songwriting. Jesse is one of the smartest guys I know, and we had a great conversation around all things music, but it got cut a little short due to a scheduling conflict on my end. I know I'm going to apologize right now because I have a feeling you're going to want this to continue. But there's good news. Jesse seems to be interested in returning, so if you like this episode, you should let him or I know somehow. We're on all those sites. You know the ones. Twitter, Facebook, etc. You know how they work. Find us, get a hold of us, and we will reply. As I mentioned before, Jesse is more than an author. He has been working on the producing side of music for over a decade now, and he's also known for managing a little band called Man Overboard. Jesse has been through the ringer and back again, which makes him the perfect guest for this show. I want to get to the conversation, but there are a couple of quick things we need to go over first. I assume if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you are a musician, you work with musicians, or you dream of doing one of those two things. Whatever the case, if you want to be taken seriously when promoting new music these days, you need to present your material in a way customized to your brand. That's where Holix comes in. Holix is the music industry's leading digital promotional distribution tool. Their platform makes it easy to create and send beautiful custom promos in minutes. Even better, Holix offers watermarking and anti-piracy tools to ensure your music only reaches the people you intend to hear it. Get your first 30 days of Holix free by visiting holix.com. That's H-A-U-L-I-X.com. Finally, to the music on this week's episode, Jesse doesn't have a band himself, so I figured now would be as good a time as any to plug something I've been listening to as of late. After I finish speaking, you're going to hear a bit of a song called All My Friends Have Changed and I Have Too from the Flat Stanleys out of Baltimore, Maryland. I discovered this duo on Bandcamp just over a week ago, and I have not been able to get enough. They have a couple of EPs out, as well as a killer split that just recently was released. Think the front bottoms meets Kimya Dawson during her Juno era, but better. I really think you're going to like it, and who knows? Maybe the band will even be on the show one day. That's everything I have for right now. Once again, what you're about to hear is All My Friends Have Changed and I Have Two from the Flat Stanleys. You can find their music wherever you stream songs online. Also, you should pick up Jesse's book, Processing Creativity, which is available from all digital retailers and is currently the number one title in the songwriting section on Amazon. You don't want to wait to pick up either of these things because both these artists are going to be even bigger in the years ahead. And I really am thankful to have them on the show today. So I'm going to stop yapping, play a little music, and get to the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. I wrote a letter home to all my friends, but it's a letter that I never sent because I wrote it to the version of my friends that I can tell are dead. It won't be the same when I get back to Baltimore. Oh, would you wake up? Because I've got words and I've got feelings. I've got sentences to make up. There's a place I know where we can go to hide from all the fist fights. And there's a place I know where we can lie down and hope we don't see headlights. But it won't be the same when I get back to Baltimore. You're bleeding, 
it won't be the same because you'll stay and I'll be wishing you were leaving. I'll see you at Lock Raven. I'll see you with your friends. I'll see your friend group cave in. You'll see it never ends. I'll see you at Lock Raven. I'll see you in your car. I'll see your friend group cave in. You won't get that far. And I will see the friends you used to have before you gave up conversation. And I will be there for you when you need me. And you'll be crying in my basement. And I'll tell jokes. Oh, I've got jokes. And they will be so fucking funny that you'll forget about your friends and that one time they stole your money. I am all good. Feeling good today. I'm psyched to do this. <laughs> yeah, well, I uh, I had like a you, I know you do a podcast, so you probably know this pain, yes. but like <laughs> I I had a good run where I had like 6 or 7 weeks of just strong solid shows and then I had like a week where just everything dropped out, fell apart, and so I like it's been like a week and a half since the last episode came out. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. I I I, th- I had 3 weeks of cancel because you know, if you know what's the funny thing is uh I always say it's like producers, our job is to be responsible, but then you remember, oh, we're in music and they're all totally irresponsible. And so like, it's stunning how many uh, cancellations we get for producers on the podcast. Ugh, I can't even, I can't, well, you know, I actually can believe that because I have been, <laughs> I have been working on uh, this, this charity thing forever clear for like a month, <laughs> two months now. And I have probably been told i'm about to interview neil avron 20 times in those oh, two oh wow yeah it's gonna be a rad interview though that's his first that's like his first record like his first big record yeah i um, didn't think about that yeah that's totally the case because he was like an engineer on a bunch of like celine dion stuff first and then he produced that stuff yeah he did so much for the afterglow and things just boom that's awesome. Yeah. That's really rad. That's a really rad get. <laughs> yeah. Well, I uh, I really love that Everclear record, and I assume that like mm-hmm. Same. art is too busy. He has a serious show. Like he doesn't have time for my podcast. So mm-hmm. Neil Avron seems like the next best choice. <laughs> Very rad. Very rad. <laughs> and I'm glad that you love that that band because those records are incredible. All of them. <laughs> yeah, th- those are uh, great gr- great songwriting. I don't love every song on every record, but um, I really appreciate a lot of what they do. Yeah, especially the early albums are the early albums. Obviously, I mean that just feels so cliche to be like, well, the early albums though. <laughs> um, yes, well, I mean, it, it is that thing. Is uh, as I write about in the book, it's it gets harder and harder every year. I know it's uh, that is a great segue into <laughs> we're having this conversation. I actually first I gotta congratulate you on ranking on number one on Amazon still. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's crazy to watch it rise uh, this fast. And, you know, all the press I get in the coming weeks is even bigger. So I'm like really, really, really psyched. Um, so how does the uh, – I saw today that there's only seven copies of the print version left on Amazon. Like do you stock that? So, so this is really interesting. So I know you want to talk about uh, the book thing. So I'm going to write like a full article that I'll obviously even before I send it to you, if you need it, I'll uh, do it. But I've been taking notes on this. Um, I use a company called Lightning Source, which is basically the only competitor to Amazon's own printing thing. So here's a funny thing. When they say that there's only seven copies left or eight copies left, it's actually just a lie to entice you to want to have more urgency to buy. They print on demand every day all the books that get ordered. Um, it's just Amazon using scarcity to scare people. 
I was so proud of you. I was like, that means he must have like sold X amount of copies. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's definitely been uh, the, what I've seen of the sales. I mean, I got a really nice call like the day before the book came out. Like they were like Barnes and Noble uh, doubled and a half their order. So I'm like, all right, they got that many requests. Um, yeah, I mean, but uh, really, in, in all reality, too, you got to remember, too, is that uh, so with Get More Fans, 80 percent of the sales are uh, digital. Really? Yeah. So and mo most people I talk to. It's between 60 to 80. That's so strange to me because I like, I mean, I'll do audiobooks, but I just digital books <laughs> have never been a thing for me. I do really short books on my uh, iPhone. Like if it's just like something I'm going to like peruse or like, you know, uh, getting better at writing that I can read while I'm waiting for somebody who's late. I'll like read tips type books, but that's the only thing I can do in eBooks. Mm. Yeah, it's just uh, I just my wife does it. She reads book after book on her phone, and I just don't. I just don't get it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's like I still like to to hold it, and I, I like to be reminded of the thoughts by seeing it on my bookshelf because I feel like I forget things faster if I don't have them in uh, real form. Yeah, that's actually I never thought of it that way, but that's absolutely true. And I mean, I I know that you collect physical media just in general. Yes. And I'm, I'm the same way, but I have that. Like we have a huge film collection, and sometimes people will bring up a movie that I haven't thought of since the day I saw it because I don't I don't ever see it or think about it for that reason. You're right. Mm, that, that's really interesting. You know, I'm like I. It's so funny. I love you know I I I always see you writing about film on Twitter, and I'm a huge huge film fan, and um. I don't own anything <laughs> and I wonder if I should start doing that. Like I have some stuff in a uh, library for Plex. Like I keep, you know, like I want to keep Yoder Wosky movies around and like my favorites, uh, Lars von Trier stuff. But like, you know, I really don't keep anything. And now I'm like, huh, maybe that's what I should start doing is I should start getting physical film stuff. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't, I, I had it, I used to, and I sold everything. And then I started buying it again because I, I got into this thing with writing about film where I had a friend who's really successful in it that told me his style of like becoming a better writer was to start looking at entire filmographies as like from beginning to end. So he started with Steven Spielberg, start at the beginning, mm -hmm. watch everything through today and then kind of get to see how the, how the sauce is made really like what what are yes. the tricks and things so i kind of became obsessed with that and like spielberg easy and stuff and then i started to do that with actors and i got to like walter matthau mm. and i was like oh, i love walter matthau but most of his movies they just aren't anywhere anymore like you have huh. to own them on dvd or vhs or whatever so then i was like all right well so then i just so like a lot of the movies i buy anymore are like classic things or films that they don't like they haven't re-released or they aren't streaming anywhere. So I, the only way that I can see like Roller Coaster from 1977 is to buy a DVD copy of Roller Coaster from like 1998. That makes sense. <laughs> it's funny you talk about that that your friend said that. Like I, I make an argument for that in the book that like I really think that um, people need to one serialize movies and end uh, records in the order they're in, and then to maintain a state of. Uh, attentiveness while they do it like when i do that stuff like i will do the thing of like i look at my phone the pause button must be on yeah and i i really take it really really seriously with like my favorite directors and my favorite uh records you know i i do that too it, a big in the music side a big one for me is like I do this with Bob Seger because I love Bob Seger. <laughs> okay. But he we, don't share, we don't share that in common. That's fine. But uh, <laughs> as an example, like Bob doesn't do streaming. And I just – and NPR ran a whole thing on this last week where as I recently as 2010, he was doing 600,000 album sales a year still. Um, 
and he's still according to like search he's still doing like he's still selling i mean not as not maybe like 50k now like it's dropped hugely but like mm-hmm. that guy hasn't released like a big record in 30 years and he's still selling 50k 50k without streaming that's fucking nuts um but like bob Seger kind of got the ball rolling in my head and so then i wanted to get into like uh i you know i like it i like experiencing classic music on spotify like the last year that's been my thing you know mm-hmm. you know it is you get burnt out on everything coming out now because it's like what you work on and talk about Absolutely. so my Absolutely. escape has been like i'm gonna figure out why people like the almond brothers um <laughs> so, i haven't figured that out either no yeah so i like went back and i started doing that and like there's just something about being on spotify and like listening to the first fog hat record where you're like this doesn't like this isn't why I, I don't know it just doesn't feel right it's like yeah yes and I and, understand. and i struggle a lot with uh i just asked somebody this the other day i was like what what de- what determines what music we carry with us because i i realized that a lot most of the music that people talk about still from the last 50 years are released by people that are either still alive or people who lived through that era that are still alive um yes. and we're very quickly going to start reaching a point where a lot of people in the 60s are like everyone from the 60s is dead or everyone from the 70s mm-hmm. starts to die off and then it's like okay well then who's left to champion those bands or and those records if anyone because we've never really dealt with that in our history yet well i mean i if you so my father i'm like i always joke i'm a second generation hipster okay. and my father's 72 um you know so when i in 1982 when he'd be going to see like post-punk shows or like the clash it's like he also had lived through when big band was all that was on the radio when he was growing up. And I, I a lot of people get really uncomfortable with this, but like there's a reason that all the last few years, like while the Grammys are trash, uh, but the rock groups don't win the Grammys. Like every song that's won rock Grammy does is barely had a guitar in it for the past four years. And there's like that thing with radio is like, you know, every rock radio thing is becoming a classic rock station because you can only have the bands that could stand up that really tall do that. And people have to face that. It really is true that rock has lost a huge segment of it because rock is, you know, if we want to call the Beatles, the advent or, or Elvis, then so rock's turning 50 or 60 years old and genres die after about three decades. Yeah. And that, that's just a fact It's like no genre survives it well and we're, we're gonna have to accept and like i think the really the telling thing will be that this is like if hip-hop starts to age really badly in 10 years we're gonna really see it well i already see it a little bit in like younger generations i i have i started to get really annoyed by those like kids kids react to because they're starting to react to things that i remember oh, yeah. <laughs> yes 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 i understand and you're like what do you mean how does a cd walkman work like you just like it just drives me insane but i uh but i've seen where they like you know they'll they'll play like sugar hill gang for kids or you know uh daddy or like you know kane and people are like they, they don't get it. They think it's silly or stupid because it's like the early origins. So I've thought I'd think about that, but I never put rock in that context, but I guess rock would essentially have to go the way of jazz eventually. That's exactly what I think it is. And, um, you know, there's even that thing of like, um, like I, I've said this a lot is like, you know, when everybody's like, who's the next Nirvana? I'm like, it was Skrillex. Get the fuck over it. It happened in 2012. It's, it's old news at this point. And, a lot of us, it's so easy for us to burrow down our set of interests these days that we can have our heads in the sand and not even see what's actually really going on out there. And like, as somebody who also listens to dance music, like I'd say I'm like, you know, 60 punk, 40 dance. And like, 
when I, you look at the numbers of a streaming uh, of a dance music, like even an obscure underground kind of weird boundary pushing act, it's 10 times the biggest bands in the scene right now that we like interact in, like literally 10 times the smallest ones. And it's like it's a very uh, writing on the wall thing that this this is going the way of jazz, as you put it. Well, that's yeah, I've. I've committed myself in the last year to getting into EDM for this reason. Cause I have, I have a friend that runs the intersection in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You know, it's, they're, they're a pretty huge venue in terms of annual ticket sales okay. globally. And, uh, their, their whole business model is essentially EDM with occasional other shows, you know, like they've, then mm. they can fill 1800 people on a Tuesday with an act that I would say 90% of people still wouldn't recognize for that exact reason, where it's like, you wouldn't mm-hmm. know them by name, but if you type them into Spotify, their top song has 34 million plays. Yes, exactly. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating. And and from a writing perspective, it's been really hard to adjust because it's like, I, I, you know, I've spent a decade writing about rock. I don't know how to write about mm-hmm. ADM in a way that's similar. And I find myself, mm-hmm. in, I wonder if that's part of why music blogging has also started to nosedive because it's kind of founded on, well, what, a, what music is, is four people playing instruments. Um, yes. And talking about four distinct personalities and their yeah, interactions yeah. with each other. Whereas now it's like, oh, well, it's about an, somebody's interaction with a computer, which is the least interesting thing to write about in the world. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's no, uh, th- yeah, it's just like if Mad Men were set today, it wouldn't be that interesting because there'd just be a whole bunch of guys staring <laughs> at their computers all day. I, 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 I never thought about that. My father's an advertising executive and I, I've watched that show through four times and it's, I never thought about like that. That would probably be the most insufferable show at this point. Cause right? it would just be a bunch of bros arguing with each other and swinging their dicks. Yeah. Don Draper would never come into the office. He'd just be drunk at a desk in his apartment and that, that would be the show. They would Skype. We're, we're, working, we're working remotely and fucking his trainer from the gym. Yeah. It, it would be completely just so boring. And uh, and I don't think EDM is boring. And so I've kind of been trying to like uh-huh. shove myself into that atmosphere. I went to like uh, this thing called Decadence on New Year's. It's like this giant festival in Denver. Um, and we saw like Tiesto and Marshmallow and all those guys. And uh-huh. and I just kind of fly on the walled it. But even coming back from it after like three nonstop days, I was like, I still don't know how to write about this in a way that's like engaging. Yeah, I have the weird thing. Like, obviously, you know, I'm in the heart of Brooklyn culture. I literally like, you know, I live a dead center in the neighborhood that it all happens. And like, I can't actually do the mainstream dance thing. Like, I like some of them because they're very good at what they do. But like, um, I think it what's actually really interesting uh, is more like just like how we get into punk bands. Like, you know, like I look through your podcast feed. It's all very a lot of very obscure bands to the world that no one knows. It really is that thing of like, I actually find that like the dance people who get the biggest are the most boring. And it's always so interesting to me because I don't believe that about rock a lot of the time is that I think the rock rock has surfaced some of the better personalities and same with pop. But there's something with dance that like, you know, it's like you watch a Tiesto or a Steve Angelo interview and it's like these guys could not be stupider and more uninteresting. Like watching the Swedish House Mafia, that uh, movie that what's his name, uh, Ridley Scott directed or whatever. It's like the dumbest thing I've all, I've ever seen in my entire life. Listening to them talk. Yeah, no, I, I and I agree, but there is something where it's like if if like you said, if, if a rock guy gets a rock person gets there, you assume that it's because they have some like genius wit or something that mm-hmm. is like worth writing about. But in the case of EDM, sometimes you're like, did you just game the system? Like because if you can crack the code, you can get a hit song. In a way that so doesn't I, really so, happen with rock. 
I don't actually believe in that crack the code thing. So that's kind of what some of the book's about is that like I think it is still all about emotions. But I think the emotion in a lot of four banger dance, as I like to call it, uh, is just so primal that you don't need a lot of intelligence. Whereas to do something new in rock today, you need to be so fluent and understand it on such an interesting scale that you not only need to be fluent, you also have to have some sort of emotional makeup that's totally different than everyone else. Whereas EDMs in this stage where there's still this very primal thing, like kind of like the Chuck Berry Elvis era, where it's like, yes, you don't need to intellectualize it. You can just be this person who feels a certain way. Um, and I think that that's like kind of the difference. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right about the code thing. I think what maybe my problem with e at least the biggest EDM acts is I feel like even more so than rock, it seems like they much more quickly kind of settle into this is their sound. And there are mm -hmm. oh. maybe it's because the genre, that whole world is still so young. We haven't been able to see like there isn't someone that seems to be going through prolific evolutions. Yeah, Porter Robinson is the only one I've seen who like was like, cool, I invented a genre. Guess what? Um, you, I've been releasing these singles that like invented this new drama. My next LP is not even going to be that genre. I'm going to do something totally different because most of them are being opportunistic and are just doing the same thing or just have a micro interest. And they found like what they want to do and they just keep doing it because they I mean, there is a thing like when I hang out with those people is that like they're studying the dance floor. They're studying the emotional reaction. And they are interested in that, but there's a lot of people who don't have that thing that like, say like a Brian Eno had where he just gets like, he's like, cool, I did that. I'm done. I'm moving on to something else. Like Radiohead's like, we want at guitar rock. Okay. Time for Kid A. Yeah. I, you know, then, then, then time to start doing orchestral arrangements. I guess, yeah, there's still a good chance that I'm sure there'll be more coming. It is, it is awfully young as a genre, mm -hmm. as like a movement, I guess, more than mm -hmm. anything. Um, well, I like this. I haven't really gotten to go down this EDM rabbit hole with anybody yet. Cause everyone, cause most of the music rock, the music bloggers I know, they're all rock people. So when you talk yes. about it, they're like, I hate the chain smokers. And you're like, yeah, but if you saw, <laughs> if you saw the chain smokers live, you would get it in a way that you don't now. And even then you'd still like, there's something to it. There's some there there is something to it and I will fully admit it as much as like um you know if you uh ask me the question of like who would I who would I punch in the face in music I'm like probably be them. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but <laughs> like there's something about that bro, bro hipster thing from the neighborhood I live in and I'm just like yeah that's the, my my least favorite personality. I don't know. I like to think that they're like the smash mouth of EDM. <laughs> All right, I'm stealing that from you. If you, you like, if you I'm like them, I'm stealing that from you. Yeah, before <laughs> if you like them before 2016, that was like their Fushu Mang era, like that first Smash Mouth uh, era. I, I, tr tr truth be told, I tell people this all. You, you know, if there's one thing I get a lot because like I do work with a lot of dance people, is they're like, well, you know, like how the Chainsmokers came out of nowhere, and then I literally have a screenshot of all the DJ mixes I have from the Chainsmokers from 2013. Yeah, and it's like. You know, no, they did not come out anywhere. And actually the strategy they used to get this big was like really interesting of that they were always working with whoever was at the top of hype machine charts for years. And they just finally got good because most of it wasn't good. They always DJed good music and did good segs on their sets, but their actual work was fucking trash. When I saw them, when I saw them for New Year's, most of their set was DJ with a little bit. I was actually impressed at how little they played their big hit songs. It was still mostly like oh. it was mostly mostly '90s and early aughts hip hop, and then oh. they would add like 
I mean, they did like 45 seconds of the Halsey song. Like just the hook once mm. with some CO2 cannons. <laughs> yeah, as you do. Yeah, if you're an EDM and you don't have CO2 cannons, like what are you doing? It, 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 is, it is true. <laughs> I uh, That's really what fascinates me about EDM as, a, in, as live cultures. I feel like as much as people haven't figured out how to write about the artists, the live experience has evolved so much faster than any other genre of music. Well, there's also more money in it, too, so it does so make much. sense. It's like you think about how low the overhead is to do a bigger uh, thing. It's like it makes it so much easier to invest that money. And, like, I had a friend who showed me the spreadsheet of the rock band he manages compared to the EDM band, and it was like, I no joke, like, shed a tear for rock. Oh, I, I can imagine. It, it's, again, to the chain smokers. It's like two guys who just need their laptops. Yep. And I mean, those festivals have like one rig. It, it, it really is that thing. It's, it's like, it's all set the same. You hook up your video thing. The person hits play in the back backstage and does the lights. And that that's fucking that. Uh, so I want to talk about this book because I've, I, yes. I haven't finished it. I haven't finished it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also not a songwriter. So, I mean, you know, yes. meet me in the middle. I, 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 I tell everybody um, after the last book I wrote that um, I'm like, cool, like, I don't expect anybody to read this except for people to do it. So anybody who's even read any of it, I'm like, I get it. It's 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 a it's a uh, it's a book meant for specific people. And we all take forever to read books, whereas music, a new song comes out. We hit play in five minutes. We're done. I feel that way about everything I've ever written. Oh, you wrote you yes. read one thing. That's more than most. <laughs> like, yes, yeah, yes, like yes. one page is still more than 99% of people will ever give me of their time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So processing creativity. I want to talk about because you and I, I feel like you and I are similar souls in that we both read a whole lot of self-help books on creativity. Um, as, we, as we discussed. Yeah. yeah. So where so where did the idea for the book come from? Because I've I mean, I've read Stephen Pressfield and wanted to write a self-help book, too. So like what what made you want to do it? So. I initially thought I was going to write kind of more of a lifestyle and more of a philosophy book for musicians. Um, I initially thought I should write a lot of the questions I got, especially like when Zach and I were doing off the record and we do questions, it seemed like a lot of people needed help more in like uh, figuring out how they integrate music into their life since, you know, with the lack of profit and rock being there it's been way difficult and i've you know as somebody who's getting close to 40 um i'm getting very close to uh i figured out a lot of things and while i did it i started reading a lot of the creativity books like you said stephen pressfield war of art and i read war of art and i had a very different reaction than a lot of, a lot of people which i went i can't believe this book sold a lot it's a piece of shit um i really didn't like it and then i thought about what my real life's work has been and so, like I said before, is like my father was an advertising creative director, and uh, I've always seen what I do as a record producer, like, you know, a producer in film allocates budgets, things like that. Whereas, you know, a producer in rock music, you know, we're not that's barely one percent of what we do and the manager might even handle it. So I saw that really what I do is I try to figure out how we get the best creative direction. And I'm like, man, I've been writing and doing things about creativity for a long time. And then the more I wrote, I was like, this life philosophy stuff is trash. Throw that out. Let's concentrate on creativity. Cause most of what I started reading, cause I, you know, I read all these scientific papers and 
books. I'm like, no one I've ever talked to is, you know, like I rapidly listen to podcasts. I read all the interviews and I'm hearing no one saying most of what I'm, I'm here. And if they are saying it, they're not saying it with an understanding of why and the deeper thoughts behind why those things happen. So I'm like, this seems like what I should keep going down the rabbit hole. And also is like natural. Like I wanted to know more about that stuff. And eventually I'm like, I guess I'm writing a book on creativity instead of a more lifestyle book. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, the Steven Pressfield thing I think was a lot of the impetus actually. It's really hard to not read the war of art, at least for the first time and be like, yeah, that's it. I mean, I don't know many people that could get past the first five chapters. Once he defines resistance, you're kind of like, oh, yes. Um, I guess, I mean, what I'm trying to say is like, that's what really kind of caught my idea about even doing the self-help thing. Cause I was, as soon as I read the, his definition of resistance, it was kind of crazy how just being able to define something. And you talk about this a lot in the early part of the book, just being able to define what most people are like that thing, the mysterious mm -hmm. ether that we try to pull from just being able to define it really opens your eyes to like what it is and how you work with it. Yes. And I think that there is this thing of that. Um, I like to joke that like I'm an epiphany addict and a lot of these things when you just like, you're, you're like, I had the same reaction as you. Like when I heard him say resistance, I'm like, all right, that's brilliant. But then I'm like, you know, and really like, you know, that's a 240 page book in a 16 point font with more than half the pages blank. Um, I'm like, okay, this could have been a really good article I get for marketing. You make it a book, but I'm like, I don't like books like that. I like books that it's like you get a lot of epiphany per page. So that was also a lot of the thing is that um, I actually saw on my Twitter feed this morning, like somebody ranked books in the most uh, epiphanies per page or like most valuable wisdom per page thing. And I'm like, that's what I want to see. Like, that's what I think books should be. So that book is the opposite and it, it had a real strong reaction to me. So when it came to your book, did you, like, how did you decide? Cause there's, you cover so much stuff in the book and it all flows fairly narrative. Like it almost flows like a narrative as much as not as nonfiction can. Um, yes. how did you go about kind of organizing your thoughts to get started? I mean, I know you did the other book, but it was like 700 pages and that felt much more like a whole bunch of different ideas in one kind of binder of a book mm -hmm. where this is more like you kind of want to read from beginning to end. You could pick it up and put it down, but you, if you go from beginning to end, you kind of build and build and build. Yeah. Like the get more fans. I always say is like, people should read the first two chapters and then just read the chapter of what they're working on at the time and read it 15 pages at a time as you want to do a task. But this, uh, I do think that this one is best to read most of the way through. Um, I do think there could be some skipping around, but um, the way I came about it is I, so when I've written, uh, I've actually written three books, but I didn't release one because I didn't think it needed to be in the world. Um, I just take notes extensively. So this book is a 260 ish page book. Um, and when I went, okay, like, the writing part of this is done. It's time to edit. I was on 575 pages. And after my last book being 750 pages and seeing how much that intimidated people, I said, okay, that's got to go. And I know we say a lot of this repeatedly. Let's trim it down, trim it down, trim it down. But really, I try to just figure out the categories. And um, I usually just have a Google Doc where I'm like, all right, this is in this idea. And then I figure out how it all goes. And then eventually... I feel happy with that. It's like, okay, these are the sections, but truth be told, I was 
changing those sections probably up to the last days before I sent out promo copies. Um, so what was, what was the lost book? You can't just gloss over a lost book. <laughs> I, I wrote a book on making modern recordings and I just, I think it changes so fast. It doesn't lend itself to that. With that said, some of the, uh, ideas are in it. Um, the other big thing with it is I wrote, um, almost exclusively on a Blackberry on train and, uh, on subway and bus rides. So, um, to go through those notes was also such hell that I was like, by the time I had gotten it to like a first draft and like letting somebody read it, I was so embarrassed of it. I was like, I don't want to keep working on this. I have better thoughts in my head. And the idea for get more fans was more pressing. So I was like, maybe this book will be the next book. And then it didn't end up being the next book. And I don't think it's ever going to end up being any book. So that's fine. Most, most screenplays <laughs> are unproduced. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, most song ideas don't, you know, come out. So the idea that a book—it's fine—you can finish a book and not release it. Maybe, like you said, maybe that's for the best. <laughs> yes, I, 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 and you know, in this book, I highly argue that that most sh- songs should never even get past their skeletal form. Now, do you think this age of like ease of uploading and such has really harmed that theory of thinking? Because I feel like most artists now are like qu- quantity over quality seems to be a growing trend again. Uh, so I th- actually embrace both sides of this. So obviously, um, my other part of my background is I managed uh, Man Overboard, and we did 70 songs, I think, in 30 months. So on one side, it's very easy to go, oh, quantity. Um, but on the other side, when you looked at the way fans reacted to it, and I could see all the analytics, is it was stunning to see how many people really appreciate that? Like, I really like that idea of like, you know, music journalist nerdery of like, this is canon. And uh, the idea that you put out a lot of material, but then decide what's your greater artistic statement, I think is a great thing while still feeding fans and keeping them excited. I think that's a, a beautiful thing that we can do these days. Um, I have no problem with it because it's so easy that if you're just a mid-level fan, to just go, I'm not going to pay attention to every single remix, cover song, etc. that they do. I'm just going to wait for for the LPs. Or if you're a big fan, you can go dive in and go deep. I've always loved the bands that have done that throughout time. I, I would agree. I think that, see, I always feel like Man Overboard is one of these exceptions because the the quantity, the quality was there regardless, but they put out a songs in a quantity that also fit what I felt was like a narrative. So with mm-hmm. Man Overboard, I felt that was a band that the songs doubled as almost like a book in its own form, where like you felt like you were on a journey with these people and it kind of carried on to each subsequent release. You want to know what the next chapter in the story is, much like a podcast or anything else. But I feel like a lot of bands today never get to having a narrative that just ends up being a collection of songs. Or The worst is hip-hop, because hip-hop has always kind of been plagued by like quantity mm-hmm. over quality, just throw it yes. on the wall and see what sticks. But I see it happening more and more now with young acts, just because they have the ability to record. They're like... Here's 15 ideas. I actually know a band we're putting in uh, the next issue of Substream where they're, they're, I think their first real release is a full-length 12-song album. So I was like, come on, guys. You don't have 12 songs. Like, it's just... Yeah. You don't... like, And even if you have 12 songs, you don't have the, like, the interest in what you're doing yet where I think 12 songs is justified. Yeah, and I, I think there, there is a secret behind this, and I pr- really appreciate those kind words about the Man Overboard thing, because that shows you got what we were going for, and we it worked, so I, I'm really psyched on that. But um, the other side of it is, 
is when they came to me with their first demos, they brought me 38 songs for the first five song EP. And yeah, we developed a lot of those 38 songs into songs, but there was still 40 songs on the cutting room floor of those 70. And, you know, I talk a lot about Rick Rubin's method in the book where he's very staunch that you basically have to have fully formed for a 12 song album. You have to have 36 songs. You're going to record 24 then another six of them are going to hit the four. Then you have six B-sides and a 12-song record. When Black Sabbath didn't want to do that much, he made them put out an eight-song record. See, and I, I don't I don't hate a nine-song record. I remember there's a nine. I don't either. There was a nine-song Atreyu record right after The Curse, and it made better sense than what they ended up doing. Like, it worked for what they were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, after what was arguably their largest release. I actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because I remember a story I always tell people when I do these, I know you do conferences too, and you make these yes. things where people ask you the same five questions. But I always <laughs> do the uh, write a ton of songs. I use the Rick Rubin story as well, but I, I remember when AFI did December Underground, they had 100 demos that end up becoming mm-hmm. December Underground. And I that blew my mind at the time because I had also read a story about how Some 41 had written Chuck and done 13 songs and 12 of them made the record. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the other thing we don't know, like the unseen part of it all is like you don't know if they were sitting there and they just didn't bring all of them to the band or like let's also remember Chuck. That's the one the manager produced instead of Jerry Finn. And uh, he could have been sitting there discussing which demos and helping that like when whoever came up with the good idea, he could have been like, that's the good idea. Keep working on that and don't do that. And they could have been nipping it in the bud before they ever got to be demos. Like, it's hard to ever know where these people were and their thing. But I know one thing is, like, I've been making records for 90 years. And actually, it's funny you talk about that December Underground thing, because when I used to work for Ross Robinson, we were in talks to do that record with them. And I remember that thing of, like, I want to actually say that they said they had even more than that. And we were like, oh, God, we're never going to be able to listen to 100 demos. Yeah. yeah. But I'm glad. I love that you have these deep pulls of knowing who the producers are for these records. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That that is my my superpower is that and knowing uh, the senator for every state in America. Oh, oh, that's a solid superpower. Mine's the capital of every state, and then all Ah. of all of alternative Christian music, ninety five to two (laughs) thousand (laughs) five. Well done. Even more useless, but you know, fun (laughs) nonetheless. Um, Listen, that's, that's a genre that came and went way faster than three decades. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Story, story for another time. So what, uh, going into writing this book, I guess, I guess my first question from somebody that's trying to do something similar for the music industry is like, what was your biggest obstacle in, in doing this? I mean, is, cause part of me feels like the greatest obstacle I face is just, feeling that I have the confidence slash authority to be like, I'm the guy who should tell you how to do this. So I do have a confidence that a lot of people have instilled in me that I know how to tell people about bigger ideas in a way that somebody who doesn't understand them can get them. And I think a lot of that is being just a fucking nerd who works with musicians who don't give a fuck about learning and uh, having to explain things to them all day. And I've been doing that for so long. Um, but the greatest obstacle, I mean, I actually write about a lot of the obstacles in the book, but like, you know, uh, some of the hardest things is just working into a life. Like I, you know, every musician these days that isn't popular has to deal with a day job most of the time. And like, I still had to produce records. I have noise creators where I do a ton of coding work and I do a ton of podcasts and other things. And I try to have a life. 
Um, that didn't work out so well during a lot of the making of this record, uh, the making of this book. But like I'm producing, mixing and mastering records like I still in the year that I was going hard on this, I still worked on like 200 records last year and uh, figuring out that I had to do things I can't write at the end of the day after I've been having all this option paralysis and ego depletion of producing, mixing and mastering records all day. I figured out that what I had to do is like I had to figure out efficiently how I go to work three to four days of work and do the record production um, and then do like a 16 hour day, then sleep in eight to 10 hours the next day, get myself healthy, get a good breakfast and then work on the book for as long as I could each day and then figure out what I could do is like I usually could only do five hours of good writing each day and turn off the Twitter. And then the rest of the day I could spend like reading, doing research, touching up some grammar things working on the other ideas, but like having to figure out all that was like, I'm real glad it's over. <laughs> yeah. So what was your method for writing then? Did you, was it, I have to do it at the beginning of the day or like set time aside on the weekends? When did you actually write this thing? Uh, so it was weekdays and weekends cause cause of my job, um, those don't really mean anything. Um, I could like today's my day off actually. And it's Wednesday when we're taping this and, uh, I'll work all through the weekend. Like I have a new project with the guys from Somos that they start on Thursday at 10 PM. And then we work till Sunday at 10 PM. And it's like, it's always chaotic, but um, I'm also the weird person that uh, my good in times where my brain works well is about 6 PM to 1 AM. So it basically means like my social life gets cut off from that because I have to value that the most. And I also can't really do much in the morning. So in the morning, it's like I'll do all the emails and all my obligations and go shopping and all that stuff. And just learning that about yourself is so much of the thing is like I've always known this about me that I should do the dumbest work in the early morning or the very end of the night for me. And learning that as a record producer, it means like a lot of time um, mixing records is a lot of clerical work, like literally data entry, a lot of it. And uh, just organizing. And I've learned that I should do that at the end of the day when my ears are shot or the early morning when I'm not feeling particularly creative and I'm not going to get into flow states as easy. Oh, flow states, man. You, you oh. have, you've done your reading. No, yes, yes. So there's a, there's a, there's a whole chapter on that in there. I, I believe in them. I know that there are, there are flow state naysayers, but I do believe it's a thing. Anybody who's a flow state naysayer hasn't done the work to get their mind there. And I say this as somebody who had to work very hard to get them. I was always self-diagnosed ADD and it wasn't true when I learned how to concentrate. And I, I also say it, it's like, you know, like um, a lot of working on music is almost like learning to meditate is that you have to learn an extended concentration on one singular thought and attention. And it's that thing. It's like when you start to learn how to do that, that those flow states are real and it's a totally a thing. Now there is an argument. Like I think uh, Stephen Kotler talks about it, that a lot of people who are on the spectrum do are not able to achieve uh, flow states as easy. But then they also say that there's other parts of the spectrum that you achieve them even easier than other people that you're kind of almost always in a flow state. I, I think I'm, I think I'm part of the more difficult crowd. I'm in a flow state. Mm. 
the first few hours of the day. Like my thing is like, I feel like I can get into the flow state as long as I learn to not pick up my phone when I first wake up. Like I have to do it right in the uh-huh. morning. Like if I want to be creative, the thing where it's like writing, you know, the Holix blog or doing things that are kind of like what I've made into work, like you with production, probably to some extent, like that is kind of like a, just a skill that I turn on and off, but to really mm-hmm. write, to do something new or to evolve that skill, I have to like, make sure that i haven't taken in something else because I, I i read once about uh about the effect of how your brain has to kind of switch gears when you start looking at your phone in the morning it has to start processing information and i try mm-hmm. to i try to resist processing anything that's unfamiliar as long as possible in the morning and just write just work until hmm. until i start pulling stuff up because once i start processing stuff then my brain's everywhere else yeah, you know, I've gotten really good at um, I, like I kind of call it like the vacuum time with my head. Is that like everything that's gonna trouble me, I get out of my head. I mean, I'm also really good with like a lot of like stoic philosophies of like calming myself down and doing it, and getting it out of my head, and being like, okay, this is not gonna matter if you do this in one hour or five days. It it real literally does not matter. It will have no consequences. Let's do this, and I get in a good headspace. But like, this is all stuff that like. I think a lot of people who like naysay it just like really like they're just so used to operating at a terrible level that they just don't believe in it. And they you don't see that enhanced uh, work on your creative work really does reap huge, huge benefits. Yeah, scheduling is like was probably one of it's, it's dumb to me how much time in my life I didn't spend like having a daily schedule. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's those little building blocks, right? Like that's ultimately what leads you to be able to do the flow states and all that stuff. It's like as simple as like knowing what I'm going to do the next day as opposed mm-hmm. to just sitting down and being like, well, work. <laughs> yes. And I, I definitely believe um, I always joke that I'm a really chaotic person who's been a reluctant planner. And I now like so thoroughly believe in like planning things because I've seen how much it helped me despite it not particularly contributing to the greatest amount of happiness in my life it does contribute to better work and being happier with my work which i think makes me a lot happier yeah no i absolutely i i find myself way happier i i didn't realize how much my like uh i don't know what the word would be laziness slash like depression over because I, I mean i'm you you're a guy that works by yourself a lot of the time i assume oh yes yes yeah. yes i mean the majority of my life is spent uh, been alone in a windowless room yeah i only recently got an office with windows in like the last 12 months and we moved to minnesota so like most of the mm. year i can't be in there anyways because you know ice <laughs> it's just way too cool yes. <laughs> so i've only recently been able to really settle into the office space and i i'm that way where it's like I, if I don't have something like a, if I don't have my schedule and I don't have, you know, myself on the right track, I find myself getting like real bummed out real easily because I just am like just a wash, you know, and lost in the industry. Mm-hmm. And you're like, and because you're by yourself, you really don't have that tether of like, if you work at a record label and you go to the office every day, there's like seven other people there who are also trying to make, make it happen. Mm-hmm. And when you yep. find yourself in that like isolated room, you're like, yeah, but if I just don't do it, who's going to notice today? Oh, and, and, and like trust trust me when I say it. like I you know it's like uh, I have friends who like tease me they're like dude it's like 2 p.m. and you tweet about the newest episode of Mr. Robot I'm like well sometimes that's the scheduled tweet but the good about it is I just go yeah I'm a little burnt out it's time to kick back for a little while at 2 p.m. and knowing I can do that for some of the work is the best thing that also gets me great work.
<laughs> it's true. It's true. My boss at Holix, I make this joke anytime someone asks me what it's like to work at Holix, but I'm always like, Matt goes to the gym from noon to like 2.30 every day, with, uh, like clockwork. <laughs> and he goes because no one else is there. And I'm like, so yes. that's that's what it's like to work at, like in the middle of the day, that's a normal thing that he's like, I got to go to the gym and just like work this out so I can so I can sit back down and function in the middle of the day. And that's it's one of those, uh, what do you call it? One of those niceties that I guess that we are afforded in our positions. It's, it is true. So I know you get into this in the book, but maybe as like a free little sample to people for people that aren't in mm -hmm. that position, because this is what I get the most often when people ask me about how to get into the professional side of music is like, how do I do that while, you know, keeping a roof over my head? And you have a whole section in the book about this, but could you kind of yeah. shine some light on what you tell people? Uh, I think people don't reverse engineer their lives about what's going to be nurturing to them a lot. Um, I was out with a good friend of mine doing this last night. And so for me, um, the other thing is like genetically, like my parents are the same, is that like we need abnormal amounts of sleep to be functional human beings uh, in my family. And because uh, of that, like I have to do the thing like, dude, like I am a partying, drinking type of guy who lives in the heart of Brooklyn and I have to go. Cool. I have to be up at 9 a.m. That means I'm home by 1230 because it takes 30 minutes to wind down and for melatonin to kick in. And for other people, it's like, you know, like I said, like I do a 16 hour day at my job because I know I if I do one mix during the day, I'm not going to be able to write it at night because that depletes all of my creativity and the momentum I have. And I've tried to get around it so many times, but I've engineered my life around this. And so many people need to quit their jobs change their jobs or change the way they delegate their sleep, their nutrition. Like so many people, like I know it's, there's nothing more boring than listening to a hipster from Brooklyn talk about nutrition, but like, you know, uh, I never would have written get more fans without uh red bull. And with this record, it's like knowing how to do like coffee and matcha. Like it was like, I discovered like my brain's a lot better on that stuff. And it's like way more measured. Whereas like, when I was drinking Red Bull, it's like I have one good hour and now it's like I can get five good hours and like learning how to find those patterns and then find a job that like works for you. Like you're talking about how you are really good at creating in the morning. It's like if you have a job that makes you get up at five, that means you're going to have to get up at four, which means you're never going to concerts anymore and you're not going to be able to play in a band. And so like figuring out when you do that. And then I also talk a lot about like using the science of habits and this is so many people are like, oh, I can't get into the habit. I can't do that all the time. I'm like, it's so hard for me to get in. It's like, well, you're not using any of the scientific things about how to get into habits. Like there's true science that works on it. Like I've all, like I said, I've been a chaotic person all my life. And now that I like know how to get into habits, I'm like, man, my life is so much easier, like quitting. Like I'm the skinniest I've been in years because I actually learned how to do habits and exercise for once. Like I, the way I exercise is when I hit print on a mix, I do sit-ups and push-ups and pull-ups because I've never had a way where I could be like, okay, when I do this thing, you do that thing. Because like going to the gym is just never going to happen for me. I'm too busy. Learning all those things about yourself and figuring out the science of how you do that, that's how you get those things done. And so many people feel helpless about that when they just need to learn a few simple things that make it super, super easy. Little steps all over again. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. All right, man. Well, let me, I, I can't keep you much longer. I want to, but I have to, I actually am I'm interviewing Skylar from He is Legend today as well. Oh, nice. Very cool. I'm a big fan of that I Am Hollywood record. 
Yeah, I am too. I think the problem is that most people don't realize he is legend released four more albums. <laughs> yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, well, they're one of those bands, and I'm going to talk to him about this, so teaser for when I get to that episode of the podcast. Um, they're one of those bands that, like, did two albums, went away for four years, came back, did an album, went away for two years, came back, did an album, went away for a few years, came back. And they don't really exist in the same arena as, I guess, most alt-rock bands. Hmm. They're just kind of like, I don't know. I'm always fascinated by those bands that can like pick it up, tour for 18 months, then just put it down, come back in two years, do it again. That is really strange. I didn't think about, I haven't thought about that much. Yeah, there's not a lot of bands that do it, but it's becoming more of a thing with those legacy acts that maybe mm-hmm. that weren't ever, they were never, you know, huge, but they have a decent enough fervent following. And in the age of streaming, I guess it's a lot easier to kind of harness that and keep it going. And they disappear long enough that people are hungry for them again. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's a huge thing. They might even, you know, make time to listen to the new album. They were gone so long, <laughs> which is you know, yes. a problem. <laughs> I, I mean, that's that's it's that's a whole nother conversation. But um, yes. <laughs> I do want people to buy your book. So the, what's the easiest place to get? I mean, is Amazon what benefits you the most or is there like a direct method? There is a direct method. Um, the book's website is processingcreativitybook.com. It has all the options for all the different book formats that you can buy it on. Um, Amazon tends to be the easiest thing. Honestly, uh, with this book, unlike my last book, I'm compensated about the same for every way anybody would buy it. So make yourself happy. Do your own thing. Whatever works for you. Well, that's that's a solid enough answer. And I'm going to have to have you back on the show because we do I, we didn't even get to picking up all the things that I'm trying to write about. But I am going to have to pick your brain for it because I'm interested you, in all the interviews and everything. We, we should we should definitely talk. <laughs> we, obviously, it's very easy for us. So, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. So I want to do what you did just for the professional side of things, which like I love songwriting that. is not has hasn't been done. Like the fact that your book hadn't really been done before blew my mind. Just like the fact that this idea that I have is like, people just don't do it. It's weird. Maybe it's because mm-hmm. the niche didn't seem like it was big enough before. I, I think there's also just this thing that um, a lot of people say they're going to do this, but they don't have the inertia yeah. to actually really want to do that. Um, I think it takes, uh, there's, there's somebody told me a really interesting thing the other day that like uh, you, the thing a lot of people miss is that there's usually some sort of seed that you're like, I need to do this for my own self-image. I've known I needed to be an author since I was about eight or nine years old. And everything I knew I needed to be since I was young, I, those are the things I've done. Like I have a side business where I fix restaurant P, uh, sound systems. I always wanted to have a restaurant. I always wanted to be a record producer. I always want to be an author. All the boxes are checked. Now I don't know what I do. <laughs> no, exactly. That is that is precisely it, almost in, in a perfect nutshell. <laughs> yeah. um, actually, I'll tell you real quick, real quick anecdote. The thing that really mm-hmm. broke, well, I've been talking about this book for a while and I had like an outline for it and everything for a bit, but I, I went to the worst music conference of my life recently. Um, mm. And I mean, they got my name wrong, like on the, oh. on, on, on the placard. I worked for Holland oh. and I was just like, oh. <laughs> it was so bad. And I sat down on my panel for marketing and branding and it was me who could be like Holocaust this, you know, Chance the Rapper, Metallica, all this stuff. And mm-hmm. then two people from two different local ad agencies, like, and I was in middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Um, 
so they were just like like the one person was, was this launch no it's not launch it was it's called millennium music conference i don't mind putting them on oh, blast heard... they didn't pay me <laughs> um but i heard of yeah yeah so i sat with those two local ad managers and a social media manager for a burlesque company and I sat on this panel and every single question I ended up, I ended up by the end of it, just leaning into the microphone and being, don't do that. <laughs> Whatever you do. Cause, cause like people would be like, so where should I be on social media? And they would try and be like, I believe every artist is a company and every company should be on every social media site that exists. And I was just like, please don't do that. Like, please, please yeah. profusely don't do those things. <laughs> so by the time I left, I was like, nah, this isn't worth it. Cause people pay like $200 to be here. I can write a book that does this for 20 bucks and save everyone time and you're also you're making podcasts and content you're always writing cool things that i see and it's like truth be told that is what uh it makes all those things a little bit more monetizable while helping the world like your idea is a great idea that will help the world so it's awesome oh well i appreciate that um all right i gotta hop on the phone with skylar but yep. we will be together yes. again soon uh, if we have to make it monthly, we can. We'll just teach everyone our information. Sounds <laughs> good. I actually, I really enjoyed this conversation, so I really appreciate it, man. No, no problem. One, well, last thing: is there going to be yep. an audio version? It comes out in about five days. I'm literally got uh, Amazon uh, rejected the cover, <laughs> so okay. I'm I'm working on fixing the cover this afternoon. But and it, yeah, and it's your voice. It is sadly my voice. Ah, I will. Next time we're going to talk about what it's like to have to read your own writing for that long. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I have a lot of things to say about that since it's very fresh on my mind. All right, man. You have a great day. You too. Great right. to talk to you. Yep. Bye.